0: The passage that we're looking at today, it's really all about who or what we trust in for security. The word king appears 28 times in this passage, and kingship in the ancient Near East was a little different from the way it is today. Today, having a king or a queen might be a nice income generator, Uh, for the local economy when it comes to people visiting their yacht as it's docked at Ocean Terminal. But it has very little bearing on our day-to-day lives. But back in the days of Abraham, a king's actions could have a huge impact on the lives of his subjects or on the lives of the subjects of those kings he was a neighbor to. Here in Genesis 14, there are no shortage of kings on display. And what this passage tells us is that depending on the king who rules us, our situation will either be very secure or very insecure, regardless of how our circumstances might look at the present moment. Now, the opening verses of this passage from verse 1 to 11, they give a very detailed description of what's actually the first recorded war in the Bible. All sorts of names there that I am not going to attempt to repeat. Um, and so rather than troll through them, it's, to put it simply, those verses describe an uprising of five tribal kings against four more powerful regional kings. The five tribal kings had essentially been under the the thumb of their larger, more powerful neighbors, and they decided that they had had enough. They didn't want to pay their taxes anymore. But that course of action didn't go down so well for the rebels. They annoyed their neighbors, and they paid the ultimate price. In verse 8, we're given a vivid picture of the decisive battle that put pay to the rebellion. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chadorleomer, king of Elam, Tidal king of Goam, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Arch king of Elasar. four kings against five. So uh, if you can picture the scene, it's like the the scene in Braveheart, where the the two sides meet on the battlefield, both staring each other down from opposite ends. On one side of the valley of Siddam, you have the the local tribes. They're like the the Scots, no doubt outnumbered and ill-equipped. And then on the other side of the battlefield, you have the, the gathered armies of the regional kings, fully equipped, fully tooled up with the state-of-the-art weaponry, a bit like the English. But unlike in Braveheart, where the Scots hand the English a severe beating and send them homeward to think again, a lot like what's going to happen at Hampden on Tuesday night, Uh, On this occasion, the underdogs are absolutely obliterated, and they have to beat a hasty retreat. Now, unfortunately, that retreat doesn't go particularly well. If you look with me at verse 10, now the valley of Siddon was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So so as they made a run for it, some of the, the, the tribal soldiers, they fell into pits which were essentially full of molten tar. What a way to go. And the rest of them headed for the hills, leaving their lands and their people at the mercy of these regional kings. And these fearsome warriors, they didn't hang about. They took advantage, verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. Uh, these guys, they cleaned, out, they cleaned out Sodom and Gomorrah. They took everything. And then Moses, the writer of Genesis, he draws our attention to why this story is in the Bible. If you look with me at verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Now, if you were here last week, then you may remember that Abraham's nephew, Lot, he left Abraham to go and settle in the land of Sodom. So, Lot made himself a subject of King Bera of Sodom. And we saw uh, how Lot went to Sodom because he could see uh, that it was the, the perfect place for him to grow his wealth. It's like a Premier League footballer heading to play in Saudi Arabia, a, a great place to, 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 to make unimaginable wealth. It was a lush and fertile land that's likened in chapter 13 to Eden. It was a paradise for Lot to enjoy. And no doubt, for a while, he did enjoy it. No doubt, he accumulated more and more wealth. No doubt, life under King Bera felt secure and satisfying. But then, all of a sudden, circumstances beyond his control meant that it all came crashing down. Lot, he lost a lot. Everything was taken from him and he was taken captive. The things that he had had placed his security in were found to be hopelessly inadequate. And this is a sobering reminder to us that the kings of this earth, the places that we look to for security, be that money or relationships or reputation, they can be taken from us in a moment. We are not in as much control as we like to think we are. And so placing our security, our identity, our meaning, and our purpose in life in the things of this world, it will never ultimately provide the security that we long for. Lot was taken, and that could easily have been the end of the story. And certainly it would have been a tragic end. But thankfully for Lot, God had other ideas. If you look with me at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Escol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So it's a word gets back to Abram that his wayward nephew has been kidnapped. And it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Abraham just to say, serves him right. He put his hope in the king of Sodom and now he's paying the price. But instead, when Abraham heard what had happened, he immediately did something about it. Notice the reference in verse 14 to the fact that that Lot was Abraham's kinsman. It's the same word that's used to describe Lot's relationship to Abraham in chapter 13. Uh, and we were thinking about this last week that in chapter 13, despite parting ways, despite Lot selfishly taking everything that he desired, Abraham still treated him as family. And as we saw last week, sometimes strife in the family of God. <laughs> means that for the sake of peace and witness, it's best for believers in dispute to separate. But even when that happens, that is not a reason to maintain a grudge and hold on to bitterness. Even though they'd separated, Abram still treated Lot as family. And thankfully for Lot, he had an uncle who didn't mess about. Verse 14, when I think about this scene, it brings to mind an image of Abraham as a bit like Denzel Washington in The Equalizer or Liam Neeson in Taken, marching into the bad guy's compound and taking them out one by one before marching back out with all the plunder and rescuing everyone. It seems that Lot was blessed to have an uncle with a very particular set of skills. Skills he'd acquired over a very long career. Skills that made him a nightmare for people like these kings. Certainly that's the picture that's painted. It is of Abraham and his 318 men completely routing these four powerful kings and their armies and leaving with everything. Lots possessions and the possessions of the five tribal kings. Abraham had enjoyed a resounding success. With a night's work, he had accumulated an extraordinary amount of wealth, and no doubt a fearsome reputation for his military exploits. And sometimes it's in that moment of success that can be the moment when things unravel. The test for Abraham was would he remain faithful to God when, from a human perspective, he had it all? Success, wealth, reputation. Everything had gone Abraham's way. And it would have been the easiest thing in the world for it to go to his head, for him to take all the credit. But notice, that's not what he does. Look with me at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorliomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So Abraham is met by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Two kings with two very different attitudes towards him. We're told that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He provided for Abraham. He he fed him and we're told also that he was priest of God Most High. In other words, he was a, a god feeder which meant that he recognized that there was one true God, even if he didn't know at this point who that God was. And then in verse 19, he issues a blessing on Abraham. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, by using that blessing, Melchizedek was recognizing that the victory belonged to God. That rather than having a very particular set of skills, Abram had a very particular God. God had brought about a miraculous deliverance. And here we see God's promise of blessing being worked out. His promise that Abraham and his descendants would be a blessing to the nations. As Melchizedek recognized the work of God in Abraham's life, as he blessed Abraham, he received a blessing in return. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he'd acquired. He recognized that what Melchizedek was saying was true, that it was God who'd given Abraham the victory. He recognized that Melchizedek was a a true priest of God, and by giving him a tenth of everything, he was responding to God in worship for the way that he had delivered him. And as we go on through the Bible, we see that principle of a tithe, a tenth, laid down, that a tenth of everything was to be given to God in response to his saving love. And it's a challenge for us today. What does what I give say about where I am placing my security? What does it say about who I worship? Do I cling on to my money? Do I see it as my own? Do I do with it uh, as I please? Or do I recognize that everything has been given to me by God? And do I respond by giving Him what is rightfully His? Abraham responded in humility and worship. He didn't cling to what had been given to him. He recognized that the victory was God's, and it was that recognition that governed his response to a very different king. If you look with me at verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, what a cheek this guy had. Abraham had just risked life and limb, and there is absolutely no sign of a word of thanks. Just a demand to get his people back so that they could serve him. Even though Abraham was the one who'd acquired everything, the king of Sodom was so focused on his stuff that he gave no thought to, to God being the one behind the victory. Unlike the king of Salem, he had no interest in God. He just wanted his place of power back. Uh, And in a remarkable act of generosity, Abraham gives him it all back. He just hands it back to him. Now, how was he able to do that? How was he able to give him those possessions back? How could he part with such wealth? Well, because Abraham, he recognized that true security it wasn't to be found in an earthly king, but in the king who possesses heaven and earth. Look with me at verse 22. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Abraham was able to be generous to someone who didn't deserve it because he trusted in the promises of God. He had confidence not in an earthly king who held a nation's wealth, but in the king who owned the heavens and the earth, a king who promised him far more than any earthly king possibly could. And so he could look forward with hope, and expectation, safe in the knowledge that the God he worshipped would keep him secure. And as we consider Abraham's faith, we have far more reason to rest secure in the promises of God. We have far more reason to live generous, gracious lives towards one another Not ruled by riches or grasping for glory or seeking security in the things of this world. You see, Abram could trust God after seeing his victory over an earthly opposition. But we can look to a far greater victory. The victory over Satan, sin, and death. Won by the one who is described in the book of Hebrews as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In the Lord Jesus, we have the ultimate priest-king of God Most High, a king who gave up all the riches of heaven to become a servant, who went into battle in order to deliver his people, and who came out victorious as the risen and reigning king, securing eternal riches that will never perish, spoil, nor fade. Riches which are kept in heaven for anyone who trusts in him. In Jesus, we have a priest who mediates on our behalf so that we can know what it is to be blameless before our heavenly father, eternally secure in our relationship with him. There is no greater security than knowing the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. And it's the security that is ours when we put our faith in the King of kings. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that you are the sovereign God of all things, that, that you um, are the one who provides us with complete security. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus, we can be secure under the rule of the King of Kings, the one who has secured forgiveness and eternal life, who has won the ultimate deliverance for your people. Lord, we pray that you would give us, uh, by your spirit, a deep sense of the security that we have in Christ, that our our identity, our security would not be found in in what others think of us, or in what we own, uh, or in what we've achieved, but it would be resting secure in the fact that if we've put our faith in Christ, then we stand blameless in your sight, sure of the certain hope of eternal life. And whatever circumstances we might face today or this week or or in the next year, Lord, would we remember that our eternal security is safe in him. Lord, we thank you that we can come to this table now, to take bread and wine and be reminded once again of, of the, the, the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus made, the, the King who became a servant, that we might know those eternal riches. And We pray that you would strengthen us by your Spirit as we come now to take the bread and wine. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.